Hello and welcome to a new semester of the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics podcast. On this episode, we hear from Molly Ball, staff writer at The Atlantic, with her thoughts on the 2016 presidential race, the role of the media, and the future prospects for both the Republican and Democratic parties. Moderating the event is Nick O'Mille, the new director of the Shorenstein Centre. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Nico. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center. Welcome to my very first brown bag speaker series, although not exactly brown bag, for the semester. And now to our guest star, and she is a star. Molly Ball is a staff writer for The Atlantic, where she is the leading voice in the 158-year-old magazine's coverage of U.S. politics in this election. She has been awarded the Toner Prize for Excellence in Political Reporting, the Sandy Hume Memorial Award for Excellence in Political Journalism, and the Lee Walzak Award for Political Analysis for her coverage of political campaigns and issues. She appears regularly as an analyst on NBC's Meet the Press, CBS's Face the Nation, PBS's Washington Week, CNN, NBC, Fox News, and NPR. She previously reported for Politico, the Las Vegas Review Journal, and the Las Vegas Sun. She's worked for newspapers in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Cambodia, as well as the New York Times and Washington Post. She's a graduate of another university, <laughs> Yale, and was a 2009 recipient of the Knight Wallace Fellowship at the University of Michigan. It is my great pleasure to welcome Molly to the Kennedy School. Molly, I'm going to start by asking you about uh, just a little bit, tell us a little bit about your career trajectory, why you became a journalist, and uh, what got you interested in politics, and how you ended up here. Uh, well, in retrospect, it should have been obvious when I started my own newspaper when I was 12 uh, that this was my destiny, but it took me a, a while longer to realize it. Uh, I was born in Idaho, grew up in Colorado. I uh, started this newspaper with three of my friends in suburban Denver, and so we called it the Quartet, and then they all flaked out, and I had to do it myself, uh, going door to door in my uh, suburban neighborhood, uh, selling subscriptions to my neighbors. Um, but, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I did uh, newspaper internships in college. My first one was with the Toledo Blade in Toledo, Ohio. Got a Toledo in here. Um, and... Uh, after I graduated, interned for the Washington Post at their bureau in Columbia, Maryland, which no longer exists. There's not a lot of news in Columbia, Maryland. Uh, so uh, when that ended and I didn't have a job, I wanted to do something a little more exciting. I moved to Cambodia and uh, wrote for the Cambodia Daily in Phnom Penh for two years. Moved back to the U.S. and uh, got a job at the Las Vegas Sun which was a sort of failing afternoon daily in a joint operating agreement with the bigger paper in town, the Review Journal. So when the bigger paper wanted to hire me so that I would stop scooping them, the beat they had open was politics. I'd never been a political reporter. I was interested in politics, but I'd been a general assignment reporter writing sort of long features and investigations of things like the juvenile justice system. Uh, 
So I said, sure, I'll cover politics and started covering uh, things like the Nevada legislature, gubernatorial campaigns. Uh, in 2008, Nevada had uh, an early caucus for both parties, and uh, so we saw a lot of all of the candidates, and then it was a swing state in the general election. Uh, so uh, I left Vegas to take the Knight Wallace Fellowship at the University of Michigan. Uh, spent a year there, uh, moved to DC, did some freelancing, worked for Politico for a year, and I've been at the Atlantic for almost five years now. I uh, don't tell my bosses this, but I have the best job in DC and possibly the world. I get to sort of do whatever I want, travel around the country, talking to interesting and important people about politics, and writing the stories that I think are interesting and ignoring the ones I think are not, <laughs> which is a great privilege. So you've just written a, a pretty incredible uh, story for The Atlantic on the state of political consulting that I want to get into. But before we get into that, let's talk just a little bit about the state of the race right now. Um, you know, how, how, what is your assessment of what's going on uh, in this general election? Well, first of all, this has been an extraordinary campaign. It's a heck of a story. It is, uh, you know, Four years ago, I was sort of struggling to come up with interesting angles on Mitt Romney, which was sometimes a challenge. Uh, and it has not been a challenge to make this campaign interesting at all. Uh, it's, it's really upended a lot of the things that I, I thought I knew about politics. And, and I think we've seen a significant disruption uh, of both political parties, one more than the other. Um, and uh, so, I've tried to understand those sort of underlying phenomena. In terms of where things stand right now, on the one hand, it's very unsettled. I, I think we do, there's significant uncertainty uh, with uh, some of the issues surrounding Hillary Clinton right now. I, I have no idea how these debates are going to go. On the other hand, in some ways, this has been one of the most stable and least surprising campaigns uh, we've ever seen. You know, one person led the primaries basically the entire time on both sides, and that person won. Uh, and one person has led almost all of the general election polls since the nominees uh, became the nominees. And uh, I don't make predictions. I'm not going to tell you who's going to win. Anything can happen. But let's not make this more interesting than it really is, right? I mean, we're, my, myself and my colleagues in the press are going to do our best to to hype the, the closeness of this contest, and it is close, but there's one person has been ahead the entire time uh, for a, a host of underlying and overlying reasons, and I think that remains the case. Talk a little bit about, you just said that there were some uh, fundamental assumptions that were uh, at play here in this election. Talk a little bit about, some, what, what are a couple of those in your mind? Yeah, I think I previously was under the beautiful illusion that politics was a contest of ideas. And what we saw in the primaries, particularly of the Republican primary, um, is that I think it's much more a, a contest of identities. And it's much more tribal and uh, much more sort of visceral and emotional than I, I previously believed. I think we've really seen this sort of uh, us versus them thing playing out um, with a very significant group of people voting on the basis of, of, of resentment and grievance and not a set of policy ideas. Uh, so that's, that's different. 
than what I thought. And what, uh, to what, ex- what, what, what how, how does that, how do you cover that as a journalist? I mean, what, what, is, what, what implications does that have for uh, writing about the race? I think it's important as a journalist to retain your ability to be surprised. Uh, it's very easy to rationalize the things that you see and, and, and sound smart by seeming like you expected them to happen. I did not expect this to happen, and so my response as a reporter when something happens that I don't expect is to go out and investigate and try and figure it out, try and see it with my own eyes and ears and understand what's happening. So, you know, I started, I started covering Donald Trump uh, last uh, June after he entered the race, and I did not expect him to move to the front of the pack and stay there. And when that started to happen, I tried to go out and figure it out by seeing him speak and seeing him, I went to the uh, Mexican border with him uh, when he went there in, in July. And uh, I think the most significant experience like that that I had was uh, last November was when the campaign sort of took a dark turn. Uh, it was after the Paris attacks, but before San Bernardino when Trump had just sort of doubled down on his uh, Muslim ban and shocked a lot of people and people start calling him a fascist, even some Republicans and uh, the, uh, the, the protesters start getting punched and kicked and beaten up and thrown out of his rallies and I thought, wow, it sounds scary out there. I wonder what that feels like. I wonder if, you know, when, when, when you're there, is it this like tense, seething, dark atmosphere? So I had to see it for myself and I went to a few rallies. This one rally in South Carolina in particular you know, I'm sitting there in the press pen with my colleagues and the crowd is streaming past and giving us the finger and hissing at us. And, uh, but it really didn't feel dark and scary. What I actually realized was it, it, it felt joyful. There was a profound catharsis. There was a profound emotional connection that the people in that crowd were making to this performer up on the stage who was ranting about polls and doing impressions of disabled people. Uh, but, there were, but they were connecting on an emotional level, and again, I think on the level of identity in a way that I have rarely seen in politics. And I think that's why you know, it's become a theme of the election that the people who do hardcore support Donald Trump absolutely cannot be moved off of that, no matter what policy flip-flops he makes or, or, or offensive statements or insulting them personally or whatever, uh, because they're connected not in the way that people connect with, you know, a boring Jeb Bush policy paper that they've read on a website, but in the way that they connect with, like, their sports team, right? Their tribe. They're, they, they really feel like members of a group, and they feel like their voice is being heard in a way it hasn't before. And, you know, I think most people in this country feel like their voice isn't heard. And so that validation is very profound. And what, but what, how does that, I wanna get, that's still really about the style of it in a sense, rather than about the substance of it. Yeah, I mean, I, what I, so I spent this rally talking to all of these people and I talked to dozens of people and one of them was this um, tiny woman, a retired public school teacher from rural Ohio who'd driven for hours to get there and this sweet, dainty little person said to me, well, I'm against the Mexicans and I'm against the Muslims. 
And over and over, I heard these, you know, very racist statements come out of the mouths of all these very nice, normal-seeming, regular folks. And so, and, and I, people told me that, you know, illegal immigrants get more government benefits than, uh, than Americans do, gay people and Muslims get special treatment, you know, I, uh, minorities are committing all the crimes and they, and they never get punished for it. And so the sense of grievance is, is based on a racial resentment, it, a lot of it, not all of it, but, and a lot of it is more amorphous than that. And I think that sense of resentment is different than a sort of old-style KKK racism that says we dislike these people and think they're inferior. It's more a sense that people are getting something that I'm not, and I've been left out of a system that has a set of preferences for other groups. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and this, in the sense, this sense of grievance, the sense that I'm getting screwed, this sort of chip on the shoulder. So, and again, that's not a policy position, right? It is sort of a stylistic thing, but, but it's this backlash to a perceived political correctness that people feel is shutting out them and, and their identities. And what, what is, um, then how does this play out? If we have uh, Trump as a, as a candidate with, uh, whose style is connecting in a deep emotional level with a lot of voters, uh, but whose, many of whose statements are just patently not true and provably false from the get-go against a candidate who I think the, the general critique would be doesn't have the kind of style or com- emotional connection, but does have a wealth of substantive work in policy and governance. What, what is that, is, is, does that seem like the, the right kind of way of framing up this election? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think Hillary Clinton also is a representative of the establishment more broadly that people have been rebelling against in both parties. And so to have that kind of experience strikes a lot of people as the status quo. On the other hand, I don't want to say that Trump connects emotionally with everybody, right? It's obviously just a certain set of people. And what we're seeing is the same style that has made him so attractive to a certain segment of the population has also profoundly alienated most American voters. (laughs) He is more unpopular than any presidential nominee ever, and while his opponent is also unpopular, he is more unpopular, and he's particularly unpopular with the diverse American electorate that votes in presidential elections. So it's not the case that everybody is responding to Trump's, you know, special charisma. It's a certain it's a certain group of voters that he's that he's activated. In your reporting, what are you seeing or hearing, and how are you understanding the Republican Party, and in particular conservative media's own uh, grappling with Trump? I, I I actually feel bad when I talk to a lot of my Republican friends and sources because I call them up to interview them or, or just to talk and it's like a therapy session. <laughs> They're all so depressed. Uh, mo- because most, you know, the vast majority of the sort of staffers and operatives and, and, and policy experts and people in the Republican Party uh, who, who make up the establishment and make up my, my sources are, are, are pretty 
angst-ridden about what's happening. A lot of them really believe that their party is falling apart. Really don't see how the party comes back together after the sort of cleavages and underlying uh, fractures that Trump has revealed. I mean, as I was saying about myself earlier, these are, these are people who've, who've devoted their lives to a set of ideas, the, the, the sort of classic three-legged stool of Reaganite conservatism. They really believe this stuff about smaller government, which you know Trump seems to have no interest in, family values, which Trump never talks about and has been married three times, and uh, and and you know strong, uh, active national defense, which you know Trump has been all over the map on. But he got up on a, a Republican uh, debate stage and said. Uh, George W. Bush lied to get us into Iraq, and you can apparently say that in a Republican primary and win. So that means that maybe all of these people who were voting for Republican candidates weren't motivated by that set of ideas. They were motivated by something else. And so it's hard to go back to business as usual once once you come to that realization. Um, you know, the, the Republican Party was already broken before Trump came along, and I... Um, have been covering the Republican Civil War for years now. I consider myself a war correspondent. Um, but the but the dynamic that we thought was playing out since since 2010, really, but maybe in a larger sense since the 1950s. But since 2010, it's been you know this like this the conservative movement, the Tea Party, versus the Republican establishment, and uh, I think that has been fractured by, I think Trump is a disruption of that dynamic, not a continuation of it. I think if that was still the dynamic, you would expect Ted Cruz to have won the Republican primary. And instead what we see is the establishment is winning all the down-ballot primaries. All of the races for Senate and House, uh, pretty much across the board, the favored candidates of the, of the Republican establishment are winning. Um, and uh, right alongside, you know, Trump obviously winning the presidential primary, and you have a significant number of sort of erstwhile leaders of the Tea Party, conservative media figures, people like Glenn Beck, Eric Erickson, who detest Trump and, and feel that he's violating everything that they stand for because they've been campaigning for conservative ideological purity for years and years. Um, and my, so my working theory is that the Tea Party that we thought was an idea-driven conservative movement was actually a coalition of the conservative movement and resentment voters. Mm -hmm. And Trump took the resentment voters, sort of peeled them away, right? Uh, it's sort of the, the, the Sarah Palin-Glenn Beck dichotomy. Um, and then and Trump made a new coalition, right? Because there was a portion of the Republican establishment the, that, that didn't really care about ideas either and just wanted to win. So you have some leaders of the establishment, like the Bushes and Mitt Romney, who, uh, who are offended by Trump's heterodoxy. And then you have people like Chris Christie who say, look, he's a winner. And those are the, and, and, and so those, I think, are the components of the sort of new coalition that, that Trump formed. If you look at the, the, the polls in the primary, particularly early in the Republican primaries, when you could clearly def differentiate the, the Trump believers from you know, later a lot of people came in who were just sort of on the bandwagon. Um, what you saw was that he did the best not with the most conservative voters, but with moderates, independents, and those who called themselves somewhat conservative. 
uh, and uh, you know the conservative, the very conservative voters, they were voting for Cruz in large part. Um, and a lot of people, I've met a lot of them, had never voted in a Republican primary before. And I, and I would meet these people at Trump rallies who said, oh, I'm, I don't even consider myself a Republican. I just think we've got to get something done. And he's a deal maker and he's going to make things happen. So while the Republican Party is in the midst of this kind of very visible civil war and all kinds of long running trends like conservative media kind of coming to some ugly schisms or conclusions, it's almost like something, the inverse of that is happening on the Democratic Party, but inverse not in a good way, in that, um, you know, if you think about this primary race on the Democratic side, whereas the Republican race had arguably among the deepest benches in modern American political history, on the Democratic side, it was a pretty, it was a pretty weak bench, so to speak, and that if you On think, behalf of Lincoln Chafee, I'm offended, sir. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, it, but if you think even about the kind of names that were floated for Hillary's VP pick, other than Tim Kaine, it's a remarkably weak kind of field of the next generation of Democratic leaders. And I wonder what you think about that and how that plays into the kind of current political dynamic. I think the Democrats do have a very shallow bench, and that's a problem for them. And it's a product of uh, all kinds of things. Um, starting with the pipeline. They've just been getting killed in every single level of the down-ballot races uh, for the entire Obama era. Uh, and a lot of Democrats feel that that is uh, Obama's fault. You know, he, he, won, he ran as an anti-establishment candidate uh, and didn't care much about party building. Um, and a lot of Democrats saw the long reign of, of Debbie Wasserman Schultz and all of the problems that she had as a symptom of that. Uh, because you had a president who just wasn't going to deal with the Democratic National Committee uh, if it was a headache to him. And uh, partly as a consequence of that and partly as a consequence of, of other factors, you have Democrats in the last eight years getting decimated in state legislatures, in governorships, and obviously losing both houses of Congress. So, uh, so it starts there. It's also the case that when you have a candidate as formidable and as uh, backed by the establishment as Hillary Clinton was, that scares a lot of people out of the race. So I think there are probably other uh, less well-known Democrats who might have entered had there not been this, this candidate uh, who seemed like as close to a sure thing as, as you can get. What do, what do you think about Hillary as a... Uh... Um, as America's first woman presidential candidate. And how come we're not seeing more of a motivated, uh, in the polling, we're not seeing super motivated women voters around that, around that topic or theme? And is it a mistake for her not to look at that? Is, is there some dynamic at work here? I was talking to um, another journalist um, on Friday who's retired, but who had said to me, well, in 08, I was sure America was ready for an African-American president, but they sure, Americans were not ready for a woman president. Hmm. Uh, you know, eight years ago, uh, Hillary Clinton ran very much in sort of the Maggie Thatcher mold, right? Trying to obscure her gender and emphasize her toughness as much as possible. And uh, this year, especially initially, she, she's leaned much more into 
the, uh, the feminist argument and into the potential groundbreaking nature of her presidency. But what we saw especially during the primaries was that women, especially young women, were not responding to that. And, uh, you know, on, on, on college campuses in particular, all of these young women voters were flocking to Bernie Sanders. And when I would talk to them, they would say, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost irrelevant to them. They were so sure that we would eventually have a woman president that it didn't seem like this one was necessary. And, and, and they didn't like her for all the reasons that people don't like Hillary Clinton, her, uh, they, her politicianiness and her establishmentiness, and uh, her, um, you know, they saw her as um, a, a sort of compromised by her participation in the system and too incrementalist, not idealistic enough, and, and wrong on important areas of policy. So, you know, I think her campaign realized that. You do still hear her talk about it. But they began to de-emphasize it because they realized that it wasn't motivating uh, women voters. You do see her winning women voters by large margins. And one of the key sort of demographic groups that I and many others are looking at in the polls this year is, uh, is college-educated women voters who seem to be swinging significantly toward Hillary Clinton, but is that because she's a woman or is that because Trump particularly puts them off? It seems to be a combination of the two. You have a new long piece in The Atlantic this month about, uh, about how political consultants aren't worth the money. And I wondered if you could talk about that. You, you, you say in the piece that this election is in some ways a giant big study because you have Trump who doesn't do anything in in a, in a conventional sense, follows none of the conventional wisdom, has spent a fraction of what his opponent has spent, hires none of the usual suspects, and yet, um, you know, uh, Jeb Bush raised and spent 123 million, I think? 130 some. 130 yeah. some odd million. Ben Carson, uh, north of 70 million, and Trump spent almost nothing comparatively and managed to beat them all. Yeah. Uh, and I think I described in the pieces as an emperor has no clothes moment for the consulting industry. You know, the political consulting has really burgeoned in recent years. There are now thousands of people applying this as their trade. And uh, the uh, expert that I quote in the piece estimates that $6 billion will go to or through consulting firms this year. Um, and what are they what are they doing? You know, it's very easy for any time a candidate wins, the political consultant can take credit and any time a candidate loses, it's somebody else's fault or just, you know, nothing could be done. People didn't want what Jeb Bush was selling. Well then why did you spend a hundred million trying to market it? Uh, so, you know, I, I <coughs> talk in the piece about a lot of the underlying political science research, which concludes that a lot of the tactics that political science that political consultants are selling really don't do much. Um, and the point that I thought was the most interesting um, that a political scientist at Johns Hopkins made to me was, you know, political consultants, sure, they want to win, um, and they care about their party, but, but their motivation is mostly financial, and the reason they exist is because there's all this money in the system. We've deregulated campaign finance, and the money has poured in from people who want to influence elections, and it just has to go somewhere. 
So it has to end up in somebody's pocket. And so this whole industry has sprung up to just create ways to spend all that money and most of it doesn't make a difference. And especially, you know, in a in the last presidential election, each presidential campaign spent almost a billion dollars on television. And the political science literature on the effectiveness of TV ads is very, it, it considers the effects of that to be extremely limited, especially months out before the election, especially when both candidates are doing it. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, we have this extraordinary situation this year where one candidate is running a very traditional campaign with hundreds of field offices and thousands of staff and hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on polling and strategy and uh, targeting and digital and all of these fancy things and uh, you know an entire shop of communications people writing the best press releases money can buy and you have another candidate who does almost none of that who has almost no ground game to speak of who has just started airing the first television ads of the general election, but as of August was being outspent on television $52 million to zero. And so it's like a control for the experiment. It's, 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 as it, it's like we can see how many votes you would get as a major party nominee with basically no campaign at all. And it turns out you would get most of them, <laughs> right? Uh, it turns out the race is, he, you know, he may lose by no more than Mitt Romney did. He may even win. Uh, and that would be a really embarrassing moment, I think, for political consultants because it would show that they really aren't necessary. And so you just published the piece, or the piece was just published by The Atlantic online and in print, and only two days ago? or. I think we posted it, it online in, on, on Friday. It's in our new issue. And so many of your sources and your relationships are with these consultants. What, have, what kind of response have you had? <laughs> you know, it's actually great. My inbox is full of consultants telling me they love the piece because all the other consultants are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the consultant is dead. Long live the consultant. The... Um, I want to talk for a minute about, uh, you know, uh, at the Sorensen Center, we have Professor Tom Patterson, who has done uh, two studies and uh, uh, three more in the works on um, eight uh, major media outlets and the way they have covered this presidential election, a uh, mix of uh, print and broadcast television, looking at every article or TV piece that aired in uh, the calendar year 2015 and the first half of 2016. And, um, you know, broadly speaking, uh, put some, uh, you could say, responsibility on the media for helping to create or encourage Donald Trump's candidacy. And, um, and not just that, but also for um, giving the overwhelmingly negative coverage to Hillary Clinton that um, even in an outlet like the New York Times, the vast majority of their coverage in 2015 of Trump was either neutral or positive, and the vast majority of their coverage of Hillary was either neutral or negative. And the, um, part of the reason for that is the bulk of the coverage is about polling and the horse race and events and the electoral college count, and not about issues or, or, or substance. And you, you responded somewhat to, to Tom's, you, you wrote a response to Tom's first study 
that was fairly critical of it. But I also just wanted to kind of get into the challenges of covering, uh, especially in the general election. Um, you know, again, Donald Trump, who I think really is not qualified by many measures to be president of the United States, that just because a segment of the population feels like he empathizes with, with them, that that's not, that doesn't rise to the threshold of qualification versus a candidate who may be very establishment, but is also, but also does have some legitimate qualifications. I don't think it is our, our place in a democracy to say what does or doesn't qualify someone to be president. I think if they meet the constitutional requirements, it's up to the public to make that decision. And I think it's very important for the press not to take sides, uh, in, in part because that would make us propagandists, and in part because uh, that would remove a lot of our legitimacy uh, in giving information to the public. Um, I. My, um, I have some technical issues with the, the study that you referenced in terms of how he scores things. Uh, but it's also the case that, you know, news is what's interesting. News is what's surprising. And a lot of the coverage that Trump received at first was just our collective uh, astonishment that he was doing as well as he was and that he defied expectations about the, the rules of normal politics. Uh, that he said outrageous things, and I don't think the coverage of you know his various insults to people and groups was approving, but voters responded to it anyway. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I also have a problem with the sort of normative frame of saying the media is to blame for something because that assumes that that's a bad outcome. And again, I don't think it's our place to say that Trump is a bad thing or Trump should not have happened. Uh, I am old enough to remember another candidate who dominated the media by being new and sensational and unexpected and interesting, Barack Obama. And in his case, he was credited as a master communicator. He was so good at this. He connected with people so adeptly, and he was so good at understanding the media. Uh, but we don't give Donald Trump any of that credit in studies like this. We don't attribute to him the agency of, oh, here's someone who's really good at communicating with people. Here's someone who's really good at doing things that are interesting and newsworthy. Uh, instead, because of this judgment that he is bad, uh, we look for someone else to blame because he can't possibly uh, have, have accomplished this himself. And I, I think, you know, in Tom's second study, he talks about that the, um, in many ways, the media shouldn't be blamed it's the process that the way the political process is set up gives too much control of the political process to the media in a sense that uh, I'm oversimplifying, but that what we really need is some significant reform to the democratic process of participation. And, um, but I'm still, I'm still kind of struggling with the, um, like for example, today we're reading about Hillary's health and Newt Gingrich saying that he doesn't believe any doctor's reports and that the media, uh, the media must take this health issue seriously and can't take a doctor's note uh, as evidence. Meanwhile, the Washington Post writes this morning about how uh, it, they cannot verify a single one of Donald Trump's charitable contributions, e even, even ones that he gave them the phone numbers of the charities, they can't find that the charities actually exist. And so uh, that, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with that kind of dichotomy. I mean, that strikes me as the 
press covering both candidates uh, skeptically and holding them accountable and allowing the public to judge what they, what is important to them. It feels like some order of priority might be worthwhile that uh, that that the the honesty and accountability issues that Hillary Clinton undoubtedly has uh, might be of a different nature and priority and value than those of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that we've gotten better at that over the course of this cycle. And I don't defend everything the media does, although I think most... You don't speak for the entire media. I don't speak for the entire media, although I do think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rough draft of history, uh, which means that most of the mistakes are, are, are sloppiness or limited information in the moment. And there's, if there is a conspiracy where we decide who we want to win and that kind of thing, I have not been invited to the meetings, unfortunately. Um, but... Uh, uh, but so, but this problem of proportionality uh, is a real one. It's hard to it's hard to say. But but I think again, we over the course of this cycle, because of the magnitude of of some of the discrepancy we've become confronted with, um, you do see more outlets uh, feeling emboldened to say, you know, all politicians lie. Both of these politicians lie, but one of them lies a lot more. And I think that's been reflected in uh, the judgment of, of of the voters, the awareness of the voters. Um, but again, it's up to the voters to decide whether that's the thing they care about or, or something else. And, and I think partisans on both sides in the campaigns use criticisms of the media tactically because they know that we're almost as unpopular as they are uh, because they would rather people blame the messenger than doubt the, the politicians themselves. So I'm always surprised at how willing people are to believe the campaign's claims of, oh, look at how irresponsible the media is being, when usually it's an attempt to deflect from something unflattering about the politicians. So I have many more questions I could ask you about everything from Trump's use of social media to uh, your uh, favorite campaign stop this cycle, uh, but I'd like to open it up to some questions from the audience. And if I, yeah, if you can, if I can just remind you, please say who you are and uh, what you're doing here, and uh, please ask a question, don't give a speech. Hi, uh, I'm Benjamin. I'm here on the Public Policy Masters Program, and I'm from London. I've staged my own post-Brexit exit. <laughs> Nico asked about the media's role in shaping the general. My question is about their role in shaping the primary. To what extent did free broadcast media propel Trump to winning the primary, and to what extent did that satisfy the media's obligations of objectivity? Yeah, and that's actually what I was primarily referring to um, in my in my comments. But so, and I, if I don't think there's this, everybody talks about this figure of oh, Donald Trump got two billion dollars of free media. That is not two billion dollars of positive campaign ads. In fact, a lot of it was negative campaign ads, right? And what we saw was, as I said, a lot of. It, it, his message, which was amplified uh, by the media, resonated with a certain core of supporters. Uh, but he also came out of that primary, went into the general election with a 70% unpopularity among the general electorate. So, and, and I think that will be difficult for him to undo in the general election because he is so universally known and his statements have been so universally amplified. Uh, so I don't think it is the case that uh, all of that coverage was an unalloyed benefit to him. Uh, I also think that, you know, 
we respond to what's interesting, what's novel, what's what's sensational in a lot of ways. Uh, we reflect our audience. Uh, and Trump is more interesting than a lot of the other candidates. Uh, you know, when, when Ted Cruz is giving the same boring speech over and over and over again, I don't think we should give him equal time as a candidate who is doing something crazy and interesting and provocative. And, and uh, so, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know how else we should have responded to the sheer newsworthiness of the Trump campaign. And it's, and it's weird to hear, you know, on the one hand you have this criticism that, that the media, you know, created Trump and, and, and pumped him up. And on the other hand, there's this parallel criticism that the media are out to destroy Trump and have been more negative on him than uh, they would a normal general election candidate. So I don't know how you reconcile those, and I think it's more likely that we're just trying to tell a good story and give our readers the information that they need. I don't think Republican primary voters would have made a different decision if they had only had more information about Jeb Bush, for example. I don't think that like a two-hour Jeb Bush infomercial every night would have made them like him any better because a hundred million dollars of commercials certainly depends on what's involved in the infomercial. Okay, puppies or. I submit that even puppies would not have gotten Jeff Bush elected. <laughs> but I can't know. Chris? Uh, yeah, I'm Chris. Thanks. Uh, I'm Chris Russell. I'm a, a fellow at the Belfer Center and longtime uh, science and medical reporter. Going back to the illness, the health issue in this presidential campaign, um, you just use the phrase give the readers the information they need. So could you comment a little bit about the reactive nature of, you know, Hillary stumbling at the 9-11 and all of this massive coverage now versus a proactive attempt to actually deal with this issue, this issue which they are two older candidates. This comes up all the time and has come up for time and eternity, so there's a kind of Groundhog Day aspect to this. So both in the way this is covered and covered going forward, being proactive, as well as kind of the failure of all of the different groups to really press for medical and health information and also the way that McCain did it in 2008 where he made all of his records available. So. Those are both past, present, future. Any comments on any of that? Yeah, uh, well, with all of these things, all we can do is ask questions, right? We don't have subpoena power. We don't have any power of enforcement over candidates. Uh, so they have been pressed. They have been demanded. They have, we, have, we have asked over and over again for this information and, and in some cases made an issue of that information not being given, whether it's tax returns or medical records. There's an obvious public interest in this information. There's an obvious public desire to know this information. But there is no legal requirement, and the candidates have, have made the political calculation that they would rather not provide that information. So you know, when, a, when an incident happens, like happened over the weekend with Hillary Clinton, that thrusts that lack of transparency into the spotlight, uh, those demands uh, increase. and. Uh, and I think that's natural. And I think, as you said, had there been more forthrightness from the outset from both of these candidates, 
uh, more transparency, there would be fewer questions now. Molly, maybe you could actually just compare and contrast for us a little bit the 2012, the transparency and accessibility of both the candidate and the staffs of the 2012 general election candidates to this cycle. Yeah, I think a lot, I think the personal accessibility of political candidates has been eroding, and I blame the consultants for that in some part, because the consultants consider it their job to protect the candidate from making mistakes, and to and, and that means protecting them from the press, particularly uh, skeptical press. So you see more and more candidates at all levels only doing interviews with friendly media, or, uh, you know, relying on their communication staff to put out statements rather than engaging with reporters themselves. Uh, we certainly saw this from both 2012 candidates. They rarely spoke to the traveling press that was covering them and, uh, and, and uh, you know, relied on their staff to, to provide information sometimes and sometimes not. Uh, and didn't do a lot of interviews. Um, this cycle, it's interest, there's this interesting conundrum where on the one hand, Donald Trump is nastier and more antagonistic and meaner and more arbitrary with the press than most politicians, and that's saying something because all politicians hate the press. Um, but on the other hand, he is a lot more accessible. He likes to do the interviews himself, and he talks to all kinds of media. He gives interviews all the time. and Including Russian TV. Including, including Larry King, uh, whose, uh, whose <coughs> show is syndicated by Russian state TV. Um, so, uh, so, so, and I think, again, I think the way that the consultants have so homogenized the process and made it boring and safe uh, has is contributes to people's cynicism about politics and is part of why people find Donald Trump refreshing because he does actually seem to just say whatever comes into his head even if it's weird or offensive and he does actually speak for himself uh, so well, well, one of the things uh, one of the things I like I learned when I was in po a political operative from Joe Trippi political consultant was that you have to make it fun. You have to make it fun for the political organizers, for the people coming to events, for the press. The more, more boring you make it, then the more likely you are not to get anywhere. And there are ways to make it fun that can still be kind of interesting and substantive and don't necessarily involve, you know, saying whatever pops into your head. Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. I think that's right. And I think... Um, when when campaigning becomes such a slog that it's totally joyless and drains all the interest out of out of the political process, uh, which should be fun, I think it's fun, uh, but that does that that does make it hard to create excitement around your candidacy. All right. Other questions? Let's see. We'll go here. I'm apologize. I'm prioritizing students. Hi, I'm Matt Budwick, I'm an MPA candidate here, first year. <clears throat> I hear your push that the media can and shouldn't be the arbiter of a candidate's legitimacy. At the same time, if Trump loses, the, the game has changed forever, right? And not just in the sense that um, the coalitions of the, that, that the Republican Party is representative will be realigned, and not just in the sense that people will campaign differently, but also in the sense that you can dog whistle and get away with it 
uh, in the least subtle ways. How, what's the media's responsibility for reporting that kind of appeal in a way that, that doesn't amplify it? I don't think we have a responsibility not to amplify things that are true, right? I mean, I think we ought to, and I, and I, again, I don't think we put a thumb on the scale, but, but in portrait, I mean, it's hard for me to say someone has gotten away with dog whistling when, in your scenario, they've lost the election, right? If, if this election is a referendum on the kind of distasteful sentiments that Trump is appealing to, and if he then loses the election, will that not have been America saying that, no, we don't accept that kind of thing? Uh, I think in, in some part it will have been, and it will have been about other factors as well. But, uh, you know, I, I am very interested in the story going forward of what happens to the Republican Party. I have no idea how that's going to play out. And while a lot of people are anticipating a sort of epic and apocalyptic meltdown, it's just as likely that people yell at each other in op-eds for two and a half years and then there's another presidential campaign, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing that, you know, I've been watching the down-ballot primaries to try to figure out what is going on in the Republican base. And we have already seen candidates come along who have explicitly styled themselves along Trumpian lines, run on sort of the Breitbart platform of, of, of populist nationalism uh, and and explicit racial appeals and um, the sort of Brexit, you know, opposition to migration and diversity. You had a candidate like that run against Paul Ryan in Wisconsin and another run against Marco Rubio for Senate in Florida and they both lost in a wipeout. And they're both running against better known, more successful politicians. But really, I mean, Ryan's challenger got 20% of the vote. So, uh, you know, it's, a, there are some there are a lot of Republicans who, who really believe that Trump is an anomaly um, because he's a celebrity, because he was in a 16-way primary where you could win with 20 or 25 or 30% of the vote in the early going, uh, and that those circumstances are not likely to be duplicated, so you can go back to business as usual and keep running on the old uh, unpopular ideas of more war, less social security, and more immigration, um, which is sort of the Lindsey Graham platform. Um, so, so I don't know what's going to happen. I think it'll be really interesting. Hi, my name is Prakriyadi Ismail. I'm a mid-career MPA program at the Kennedy School. I'm coming from Azerbaijan. I want to ask you something closer to, to my part of the world. Earlier you mentioned the case of the uh, candidate uh, Trump speaking to Russian TV. Could you please uh, elaborate a bit more on the allegations of the Russians' attempts to interfere with the elections? Just in July, Politico ran a story telling that as Secretary Clinton harshly criticized the Russians' elections back in uh, 2011 and then accused of standing behind the mass protests in Russia, now the official Kremlin has been trying to take a revenge. Uh, how these allegations uh, uh, may play out for the end results and the, and the longer run, uh, how these bilateral elections, uh, the relations between Russia and, uh, and, and USA, uh, may evolve depending on who, who's sitting in, in White House next January. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not a Russia expert, but the, this, this, that whole subplot has been just mind-blowing in this election. I, I, I don't think there's any question who the Kremlin would like to win this election, uh, and they've not been subtle about expressing that. And even without direct links, 
between the Kremlin and some of the things that have happened, such as the hacks and the release of uh, things like the DNC emails, uh, you know, there's 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 not a direct link there, but it's not a very subtle. Uh, it's not very subtle what the intention is. So, Molly, I'm actually surprised that story hasn't gotten more attention here, mm. um, which is just a foreign government appearing or allegedly trying to significantly influence the U.S. election. And being actively encouraged by one of the candidates yeah. to do so. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, again, that you have a Republican nominee cozying up to Vladimir Putin and flattering him and... And you know, for me, it's 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 also a window into Trump, right? That he values that image of strength and and a sort of manliness. It's amazing, and I don't know how much of a coincidence it is that the uh, election featuring the first woman major party uh, nominee is in opposition to the candidate of sort of pure male grievance and machismo, right? And is being conducted along such like mommy party, daddy party lines. <laughs> um, but but so but going back to, to to Russia and to Putin, it's 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 unbelievable. It just it it's 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 hard to believe that this is actually happening. <laughs> Um, uh, my name is Ivanka Klein, MPP and former journalist. Um, in a lot of our classes on di diplomacy and politics, we hear about the role of the media. I just wondered what you make of sort of the digital age, the idea of 24-hour media, the idea of social media, and how that reforms how campaigns take place, slogan politics, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's made it a lot faster, um, but I think the most significant effect of the digital world uh, on politics has been, it's removed a lot of the intermediaries. So people now have access to so much information and have the ability to find information that uh, agrees with them whether or not it's true. And so you have not just the media but political parties significantly weakened as institutions. If the you know RNC had been in charge of this election, they've put a good face on things. But this is not the outcome they probably would have chosen. Uh, but because of this sort of radical uh, disintermediation that's occurred, uh, you know Donald Trump can communicate directly with his 10 million Twitter followers. Uh, doesn't need cable news, although he's got that too. Uh, so it's. So it's you know in a, in a way it's 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 made the process a lot more democratic. People can start their own movements. People can do grassroots fundraising online. People can uh, find people all over the country who agree with them and 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 build groups on that basis. Uh, and it doesn't really matter if I think that's good or bad because it's happened, and it's not going to be undone. And so the question is how do those institutions either refashion themselves to catch up or become obsolete? Right, one last question. Um, let's see, yeah, we'll go over there again. Hi, I'm Brenna, I'm MPB2 at the Kennedy School. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I really liked your article about the political consultants. I worked on a campaign in 2014. We had the best consultants money could buy that year and failed pretty spectacularly. And those consult consultants continue to be employed. Um, <laughs> So I was just wondering if you think this campaign has so thoroughly disrupted that industry with Trump, or do you think the campaign consultancy industry is going to keep growing, or 
what do you think is going to happen next after this cycle with those particular people? I think it will keep growing. I, I, I think as long as the money is there to be spent, it's got to go somewhere. And what you know, Nico and I both attended this uh, American Academy of Political American Association of Political Consultants conference, where the stuff just keeps getting more. The, the services offered keep getting more sort of whiz bang and 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 fancy and interactive and digital. And there's all this software and data stuff that the candidates can't even understand, but people tell them that they need it, so they have so they go and buy it. You know, and they keep uh, making the fundraising calls, keeping the money coming in. And uh, so I, I don't think that's going anywhere. It, it's possible that candidates will be slightly more skeptical of it, having seen uh, from the Trump example. But, but you know, what the consultants will tell you about Trump is, oh, he's, he's an exception because he's a celebrity, and most candidates don't have the ability, uh, don't have the name ID that he had, and you have to build that with our very expensive services. So. <laughs> We'll see. You know, one, I would really encourage everyone to go read Molly's piece. One thing that really stood out for me from it was it seemed like that storyline of the Ben Carson campaign having been created by consultants for the express purpose of making money. And it was it was an almost fantastical, uh, you know, uh, story. Yeah, and, and Ben Carson actually has come to that same conclusion. <laughs> he believes he was taken advantage of by people who just wanted to make a buck. So uh, before we thank Molly with a warm round of applause, I want to uh, remind everybody, text CENTER to 41411, and we will remind you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday, we'll continue this conversation about the election with Bob Schieffer and Ann Compton in form. Molly, thank you so much for taking time for that business campaign trip. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Music